Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about ethical and accessible food systems, sustainability, and how we can make an impact as individuals and as a community. But before we get started, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. We appreciate your shares, your money, your subscriptions, and your reviews. You can become a contagion by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. And this season, we have new content on Patreon. We will be hosting two Q&A sessions every month, one with us, your favorite scientists, and one with different guests we've had on the show. If you have any burning questions, requests, or things you'd like to ask with the privacy of anonymity, this is for you. Okay, let's dive right in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Christian Tandasso, an artist and graduate student in environmental policy and sustainability management. Christian, thanks so much for being here. Can you give us a short introduction about yourself and where people can reach you? Hi, Susanna. Hi, Diana. Thank you for having me here today. My name is Christian Tandasso. I am originally from Ecuador. Um, I have indigenous ancestry to the southern Ecuadorian Andes. My, I come from a lineage of small-scale peasant farmers and a lineage of artists which currently are present in my work. And um, I am currently a graduate student at the Milano School for Environmental Public and Poli- um, Policy and the Environment. And my program is in Environmental Policy and Sustainability Management. I am, my background is as an artist. I went to school for um, ceramics and sculpture which is really like different from entering environmental policy, which is like, was like a total shift from fields. Um, The reason why I did it was because there was like a strong passion for me to do something more apart from just, you know, like going to your, like a protest or something. And it's just like, I I felt like Mm -hmm. I needed to do something more. So I've been in grad school since my career has, my career prospects have changed dramatically. Like, I know that being an artist is like something that I'm always going to be. But right now I'm looking into more of like the entrepreneurship road and how we can use and harness the power of entrepreneurship towards building alternative economic models that counter hegemonic capitalist models of production in order for us to really have like a healthy, sustainable society that I mean, because I feel like right now it's not being done properly. So I'm just like, you know, trying to put my foot in there and it's just like a brand new field that I'm entering. It's really exciting. Um, I've been lucky and privileged enough to be in the school, which has really provided the access to all the things that I'm about to share with you today. And it's been great. I'm happy where I am. I feel like I am in my aligned path, mm-hmm. my purpose, and awesome. it feels right. Awesome. Uh, you can reach me out at through Instagram, I would say mostly, de la tierra soy. And you can just DM me and um, find me through there. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank so, you. You've, that's an interesting career trajectory. Like super <laughs> art, art focused yeah. and all the way over to, um, I'm going to say, environmental policy slash sustainability slash entrepreneurship. 
<laughs> yeah, base. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a shift, um, tiring, and like it's been something because like I was out of school for two years, and so I wasn't doing any schoolwork, um, related. And when I started grad school, it was just like a shock back. It's just like、mm. oh my god, I'm back, and it's like something completely that I have no idea what I'm doing. But um, the program itself has been so um. Catering to like our needs as students in a way that it like has really like provided the foundations for us to really take on and like be professionals in this field and pro- I mean good practitioners. Yeah, we mostly need.、Cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us really know what's going on in grad school or out of grad school or in any school, so it's fair. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, yeah, that was me at the beginning too, because I was like, oh, like because originally I wanted to do something related to.、Um, Like consumerism and dealing with、uh, climate change, but like as like my courses have progressed, I've been leaning towards like food systems, entrepreneurship, decolonization theory,、um, dismantling the、okay. system. Was there like a specific course or event that led you to focus on、um, food systems and sustainability, or was it、um, just like a gradual progression of things? Like what what led you there? There was this one course, and I actually like I always recommend it to every person that's in my program. Like you have to take this class.、Mm-hmm. It was、um, global environmental policy, and the way that the class was broken down, it was broken down in like different sectors of the environment and how the geopolitical aspects of each of those work in the local, national, international spectrum.、Mm-hmm. And it was just like a very like mind blowing experience to me because I couldn't, I can't see life the way the same way anymore because of that class. That's amazing. It's just like one of those classes that shakes you. I mean. I feel like some people weren't shook enough, but like you were shaken to a lot to like to some point, like your mindset like shifted. And for me, like I learned a lot about food in there, and I've personally been drawn to food. It's just like unconsciously in a way. I come from a lineage of small scale farmers in the Andes Mountains, so food has always been like, and agriculture has always always like been present in my life. I just never really like、mm-hmm. went for it. And now I'm like I'm in grad school, and like I tell my mom, she's like, "Oh, like I'm studying food, and like all of these methodologies that like、um, that are supposedly better practices for the environment and farming, farming." And my mom and my dad both do those practices when they were little、mm-hmm. in Ecuador. So it's just been like full circle into like just where my roots are coming from and how I'm here. But that class really shook me, and I was just like, "Like I need to, like, I need to do something more." <laughs> Yeah, he's literally shaking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was such like it's been a depressing, I would say, like a very depressing program. Like everything you learn is like how effed up the world is, and like all the problems that are happening, and they're like, what are the solutions?、Yeah. Like, oh, there are like a few, but it's just like, but we like there's so little right now. But um, the solutions are there. The solutions exist. And I think that's the one thing that I, like I'm trying to hold on to, just like the solutions exist,、yeah. like things are possible to really like be able to keep on doing this work and learning more about the intricateness of all that and its relationship to health, which is so 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 interconnected. Yeah, yeah I think it's funny that you say you,、um, you know, your mindset shifts and then you see everything in systems. Like the other day, I was talking to Dan and I was like, "How do we stop our brains from seeing everything in a systems-based way?" <laughs> And she just sends me that、mm. emoji. That's like you know the shrug. Like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. 
uh, I think shaking your mindset would be one of those things just like experiencing something that like you just can't believe that this is happening and also like experiencing that firsthand also probably gives you like the kind of like mindset to just be like I just can't do this anymore yeah. and I think it's such a privilege to be able to like say like I want to like drift away from this current conditioning that we've been giving yeah. because I wouldn't have been able to know this if I wouldn't have had access to grad school yeah and without access to education I think a lot of folks they really can't start thinking like this is wrong because nobody's telling yeah. them this is wrong and yeah. there's no really like push to really educate the public on the alternatives that are available for us to really practice so I think it's it's part of that and just being exposed to like this kind of topics and reading about them I feel like we had to like I was since it was a class I had to like do homework yeah. I had to do the readings I had to write the papers and just doing all of that work really just like makes you mm -hmm. like learn of like the details of how everything is working I do think though that in order for everybody to have like maybe some sort of like mindset shift would be to look at how things are affecting you directly and how that relates to how the system yeah. works overall because it's so interconnected okay in regards to like food systems in general for people that don't know haven't taken a class haven't been exposed or anything mm -hmm. or maybe they have been and they weren't paying attention and they weren't <laughs> as shook as you um, what does it mean to have a healthy and ethical food system? Like, what is that? To me, um, that means food sovereignty. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the food sovereignty movement or what it entails, but I would share it's basically, it's a counter hegemonic movement to the current industrial agricultural complex that we have. Mm -hmm. It's very anti-colonial rooted and it basically entails that food is a human right that people should be have the right to produce and maintain and trade their food locally under their own rules and jurisdictions producing food that is healthy it's culturally appropriate meaning that it's mm. culturally appropriate to the cult people of like place-based communities that are from different cultures that like the food that's being produced is appropriate for them and that there is a community aspect of food production from the moment that the food the seed is being planted to the moment that the food gets to the table so it's like a counter hegemonic structure to capitalism and like capitalist industrial agriculture mm. which is what is causing a lot of the food and health issues that we have right now mm. so like that's what a food system looks to me like that one that is based on food sovereignty there's pillars to food sovereignty too um and they all have to do with what i've mentioned um localizing food systems putting control locally and local farmers valuing local farmers and then for example if we were to implement a food system uh, a food sovereignty foundation within the states that when, uh, it means that immigrant farm workers in California or in the south that they have autonomy and rights in producing their their food they're giving proper treatment when they're producing they're not exposed to all these chemicals that they're being exposed to and also ensuring that low wealth communities particularly black brown indigenous communities have access to food because this is something else that has been perpetuated through colonialism and it which is the disenfranchisement of being connected to the land for indigenous peoples for black people for brown people so there's been like this sort of like misconnection like we like as pocs and black and indigenous folks we have to the land it's inherited but we've sort of been disconnected from that because of industrial agriculture yeah. i think there's like so many layers to what you just said right because i feel that everyone 
or most people can agree that you have a right to food. Yeah. Like everyone should eat. And it's kind of this idea of you have the right to health. Like I think most people, 99.99% of the population around the world would say, yeah, everyone has a right to be healthy. But what does that mean? And then we start breaking it down. We're like, mm-hmm. well, what does it look like in terms of access? Like some people have more access to hospitals than others, mm-hmm. more access to good hospitals mm-hmm. than others. Yeah. So it seems like that's the same idea exactly. with food systems is it's not just about sending a huge plane full of peanuts or i don't know i don't know just um flour to a community and saying here you have food right. now it's about right I, I remember some of the components you just said is you know is it culturally appropriate like are these the things that they're yeah. familiar with to cook with do they have the right to grow their own food and sell their own food the way that they want to yeah. Right. And I think that's like it's that's it's it's so related to what you mentioned as to health, like access to food, because a lot of folk there's a lot of claim that says that food security, which food security is having like access to healthy, nutritious food. And mm, there's been a lot of claims from like, you know, um, folks. <laughs> Let's say that food security is um is a problem. It has to do with uh, that th- there's no food for people to eat, which is completely bonkers. Because right now we produce enough food to feed, I think, like over twice the population of the earth. But the problem is that the food itself is just not being distributed equally. Mm-hmm. It's being distributed in a way that's very uneven, and it focuses on global north markets. So looking at food security, it does it's it's very intricate because you have to look at it from the local national and international level and who the actors are behind all of these schemes to not provide access to you know things that like you said like things that should be you know everybody have a right to it so you had mentioned something about um, local farmers and even farmers in the United States and how they're treated. Mm-hmm. So depending on who you are, meaning like what your background is, whether it's racial, socioeconomic, what are the differences in how they experience the overall food system? Well, unfortunately, the experiences do vary based on all of the factors that you mentioned. It's actually those are the factors that determine your food access. For example, um, if we break it down by demographic like racial demographics white folks and folks that have that are more affluent economically have access to nutritious food have access to local farmers they have access to you know whole foods or like all of these like capitalist food supermarkets that are in like these highly more like more affluent communities and they're purposely put in these places because those peoples can't afford those things but then when it comes to and then you're looking at low wealth communities for example there's a lot of there's a lot of food deserts in low wealth communities food deserts there's which is like there's i think like one food like one grocery store per like 10 miles or something along that lines but uh it's yeah it's a problem and it's a growing problem and especially in low wealth communities not just here and like the like um, I would say like in Jersey and New York but also like all yeah. over the country and those people that live in those like in these food deserts they don't have access to healthy food they only have access to like fast food like McDonald's mm-hmm. or Taco Bell and all these different franchises that don't provide nutritious food they provide foods that are usually fatty and then they're not produced mm-hmm. well so those folks they don't have access to a healthy nutritious food and then if you're looking into the racial disparities of it all um currently indigenous peoples who 
have been like the caretakers of land for especially here in the states for so long they're the ones that suffer from most for insecurity amongst all of the demographics and it's really like i as being someone from indigenous descent but like come from the southern part of the continent it's it's uh it's really frustrating to me that i like that i have this privilege in a way of having access to food but then like the people from the land don't like the original sacred caretakers of this place that i'm currently like standing on they don't have access to it yeah. so it's still it really is heartening to like know that and also like that's just looking at here like the u.s but if we're looking at the global lens of how food is produced so industrial food agriculture only produces 30% of our food and the rest of 70% is produced by small-scale indigenous and peasant farmers. So these people are the ones that are producing most of our food and because of international bodies and governments and policies that have been put in place through the market, these people don't have access to the food so like they can't eat their own food they produce because the produce already has an owner which is in the global yeah. north. I've heard of folks who've gone to an African country and they're like, mm -hmm. wow, there's so much food that the farmers are growing. I don't understand why they're all starving. Well, it's because that's yeah. not going to them. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, because yeah. they have to grow the food, but they can't eat the food, right? No, because there were there's like legal um legal precedents put in place. For example, uh, intellectual property rights by like the Monsanto. Uh. Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. They merged with Bayer, so now it's Bayer, which is like mm. really bad. Mm -hmm. So those agribusinesses they've put like policies in place so like for example if somebody wants to produce a seed of corn that they own they can't do that and if they do that they will surely be sued and go or go to jail or something so like there's like these limitations and then these are these um, agribusinesses they're selling the seeds to grow food to farmers at such high rates and they're not making it accessible for farmers to have food. So that's why seed sovereignty is really important as well yeah. to ensure that we have a really ethical food system because we need to ensure that our seed banks are being preserved and they're not being like um, adjusted chemically or any sort of things like that. Yeah, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I have no words. I just, I, I, who who, who yeah. let Bayer and Monsanto be one entity? Like, that's rich. It happened, in, yeah. It happened in 20s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I wish you guys could have seen their faces. They were like, it just like blank. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so, we're up against pretty powerful system that's that has their i don't know it's kind of like a monopoly really yeah very deep roots in almost every level of the system right down to the local farmers all the way up to um, industry so i guess my question is so then you as an individual you're hoping to dismantle some of this right that's what i'm getting um dismantle decolonize how how <laughs> <laughs> girl let me tell you um it's really it is a big issue i feel like it's such a systematic problem however i think like through meeting like the people that i've met in my program there's been a little glimmer of hope the way to act to do this um start practicing an alternative like agricultural model is to support and uplift the voices of the people that are already doing it 
because mm. right now there's already so many like food sovereignty initiatives all over the world with mm. many organizations really taking foot into like creating these small scale food systems in which you are in, you're including all of these things that food sovereignty entails and i personally like my i think like as a person with privilege of being in academia and like knowing all of these things it's to really continue to uplift those voices and through finding a way to like help them like assist them in any in one way or another which is why i'm going into like sort of entrepreneurial way because i want to find develop ways and to support these local economies by the local economies that it's not supported from like any outside system but it's just rooted within within the growth of that economy yeah sure but we don't have those models right i mean we do have like the initiatives to like do this at like a small scale but not to the scale that needs to be done systematically so in order to do that you need to like kind of start horizontally scaling and like practicing degrowth which are like these two new economic terminology that are coming into the narrative that a lot of economists are very against but they're going to be against anything that's not capitalism <laughs> <laughs> and so i that's how i've been thinking of like how i can do my part into ensuring that we create we have more of these systems i've also been thinking of how i can do that in my own community because i know that food sovereignty like there's so many examples of like different communities that have created these like systems and i live in a uh, low wealth community in jersey uh, majority african american and latinx so it's and we were like deemed like one of the worst towns to live in in jersey so it's like me knowing this i feel like i'm in such a place of privilege so i've been looking into like how i can get myself involved in my own town and like how i can really like get a sense of food justice and food sovereignty mm -hmm. for the people that are here i mean like even here we have such a huge ecuadorian community i'm ecuadorian and a haitian community and most uh most of these folks come from agricultural backgrounds mm -hmm. so it's it's i don't know it's like such a an, an interesting community that i really want to like assist again like provide all of these like all this knowledge that i have and like see how like you know like not go into things like hey this is what you need to do it's just right. like this is yeah these are the options which one do you want to do <laughs> and i'm gonna help you yeah. so that's how i've personally been thinking about it however i do think that although individual actions are really important to addressing these issues of in the food system also um collective action is a lot more powerful i would say like pressuring our like our elected officials into like into stopping the subsidies for agribusiness into focusing on redirecting fundings to local economies and i think that pressure really works when it comes when it's very well organized and there's a lot of passion behind it and i think it's a combination of the both honestly yeah there's not one right answer i think so if any of our listeners have some extra cash laying around and care about food and you know uplifting communities donate to christian over here and oh oh thank you but yeah, like he could uh, change up some food systems starting oh. at the local level and also look into donating to like i can actually provide you guys with a list later like after of like organizations that are really doing the work in the ground that would really need this like funding because yeah, they do yeah. need this funding um, um, and I think as part of being in this platform, I really want to be able to bring those voices up in here. Okay. You know? Great. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about yes. 
veganism because I I really oh, want to <laughs> talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, veganism. Um, <laughs> so in our in our email, you talked about how you used to be vegan. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you realized there were some issues with it, so then you mm-hmm. are now plant plant based. Yes. Okay, so uh, lots of questions. Yeah. Diana and I, in general, have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Please give them. But I'm, I'm gonna ready. let Diana start it. Start off the, the okay. vegan section. Okay. First of all, okay. What is veganism versus like what vegetarianism is, and then also what is a plant based diet? Because okay. I think a lot of people don't know the differentiation between them and like where the lines are. Right. Um. So let's start with vegetarian. So vegetarian is you. Um. You have you you your main your diet is like mainly vegetables, but you have you still eat like I don't know like eggs or um milk and or other dairy products like cheese and pizza. So that's why vegetarians eat pizza because they can eat they still eat cheese. I still eat honey, like all of these like small dairy like products. Um, veganism, it's the complete extreme as to which you have no animal products in your diet and it's a hundred percent plants. So all of your nutrients and your um, food is gonna be from based from plants. Okay. Plant based is kind of like a mix of the both. So plant based mm-hmm. is where majority for example 90 percent of your food intake comes from plants and 10 percent comes from i don't know like eggs honey milk different like little things you can even eat fish like there's no restriction as to like what kind of animal product you can eat under a plant-based diet it's just Uh, that you're it's not as big of uh it's not a it doesn't make a big part of your diet it's like 10 to 20 percent that's how i've been trying to constrain it to like keeping it to like 10 to 20 percent but most like my diet is plants i like eat plants every day so i guess i'm kind of like plant-based hmm yeah, like I would say plant based will definitely be, you know, that's the, but you, you're conscious of how much you're eating though. Like yeah. I feel like with plant based, you're, for example, I started being plant based, I think two years ago or a year ago. I was traveling in Ecuador and I was strict vegan. And then all of these foods like kept, like that we have in Ecuador, are, like very like animal based. So, for example, I went to a beach town and I'm like, I, I love seafood in ecuador like especially being (laughs) raised there and i know a lot of vegans are gonna come at me for this but the when i was in ecuador was in the beach town and they were like fried like they like have like a little hot and then like you sit in it and then they bring you the menu of what you want to eat and then basically you order whatever you want it's all seafood and the guy goes in the boat, gets the fish from the ocean, and gets it for yeah, you. It's all super fresh. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, and then that's when I realized that because in my learn in my education, I've learned that fishers uh, fishers still provide a heavy input of like protein from fish, mm-hmm. um, and fish farmers too. So like they, there's a difference between industrial fishing and um, local fishing, which is fishing through traditional ways of like ancestral ways of fishing without using and like basically technology to fish and that's the type of fishing that we have to support because it supports local communities and it's based Mm -hmm. on ancestral millennial um, ways of just working with nature and not against it 
And I, that moment, I was like, I'm going to eat fish here because, first of all, I miss the, the taste of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's being sourced so sustainably. Like, the sourcing that, it, like, the, the, for me to have witnessed all of that, like, I can eat this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But when it came to like not knowing where that fish came from, I was just like, I'm not gonna eat it because like mm. I'm just like not I, I don't trust it. Um, okay. Yeah, so it, that's how I've been basing most of my consumption. But um, I only I would say though I only eat fish in Ecuador, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. and I I restrict myself to depends on like whatever I'm I go. It's just like if I'm open to something like if. So one day she's like oh like we have cookies but they're not being they're like they have milk in them blah 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 she's like it's okay I'll, I'll eat them you know like i'm not yeah. gonna like restrict myself although the reason why i did became vegan was for health reasons it wasn't for anything else um okay. so my stomach at some point i couldn't eat so like not even drink yeah. water yeah. and so like i'm slowly gradually like introducing um new foods into my stomach as well and mm-hmm. introducing like animal products have been like very slowly done like i don't eat it it's not like i eat it like all the time but um yeah. like i don't know yeah. it's not i think that's super important to note that some people are picking certain types of diets for environmental reasons sustainable reasons but also that there are people that have dietary restrictions or trying to change the way that their body's functioning in a certain way so <laughs> you don't have to just be like one or the other strictly like you can be all right focusing, yeah right like no there's no judgment on anyone's diet choice because maybe you're celiac maybe you have like some kind of lactose intolerant you can be all over right. the place i just want to throw that out there before we continue no. talking more about diet <laughs> you stuff preach it yeah. <laughs> That's um, yeah, that yeah. you're so right. I yeah. absolutely yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I feel like that is such like a a part of like why a lot of folks go vegan. Um it's just like for the health reasons. But then again, um going vegan for health reasons, it's only accessible to certain people, you know? Like not everybody yeah. can go vegan and like go buy organic food and go buy um locally sourced food if so you're healthy. Um that's not accessible for everyone. I've just I'm grateful to have had the privilege privilege of being able to access all these foods otherwise i don't think i would have been able to do it yeah yeah but yeah that's that's plant-based that's why i practice it i also started practicing plant-based because veganism like the extreme i don't know if it's extreme or just like i guess real veganism entails that you don't um wear any animal products either like your makeup or your clothes like they all have to be cruelty free and i wasn't doing that because um i still i was wearing leather belts i was wearing leather i I still wear leather belts and leather shoes so and a lot of people were critiquing me for that so i felt like i was being like being attacked for not really like being what vegan is and so i didn't want i didn't want to attach to that identity Mm -hmm. to not have to deal with that and also i found it to be very problematic with veganism because it's a lot of people will definitely we can agree or disagree or debate on this but a lot of folks Mm -hmm. have um uh, veganism has become so um elitist has become so um exclusive to white folks particularly in europe and i think a lot of this movement veganism movement has been grounding on liberation of animals which i'm all for it you know and the liberation from those animals and i think that like there's something that's really important to say is that they want liberation of animals 
from industrial agriculture, which yeah. is really bad. You know, industrial agriculture is one of the leading sources of greenhouse gas emissions. I totally am for that. But then they're also saying like nobody should eat animals, like not even people that have been eating animals for millennia, not even people that have been have included animals as part of their traditional practices for so long that have been eating animals sustainably for so long without mm-hmm. having like a major impact on the environment. Because if you think about it, cows have been here for so long. Like cows did not just like, <laughs> yeah. cows did not just like appear. Cows, pigs, all of chickens, them. yeah. They've been here and they're, and it's not like that they themselves, the animals are bad. It's the way that they're being produced that it's bad. And mm-hmm. vegan, a lot of vegans are not really looking at the systemic issue they're not really looking into how exploitative veganism is for labor um for immigrant farm workers and here in the the southern u.s and in the global south like a lot of these vegan products are coming from and i think this also touches on the question for the forest fires and so it comes from really like uh like the global south so like all of these agribusinesses that are making animal products here in the states are also doing businesses in the global south they're producing soybean corn all of these things that are important for mm-hmm. vegan products and they're all being exported and they're still causing deforestation they're still having all these social problems but that doesn't seem to click to for a lot yeah. of vegans and it's becoming problematic because you're. I I saw an interview where a vegan was comparing animal slavery to black slavery and to human slavery, and oh, I was oh like, yeah. I'm just face palming. So <laughs> yeah, I I yeah. I was upheld, and he was a white person, and it was a brown person trying to hold him accountable, and like this reported this reporter. And he kept saying, like, no, no, like, it's like, if you, like, animal, um, animal slavery is the same thing as human slavery. I was just like, no, it's not. It's like, you're <laughs> literally, like, the, like, dismissing, ever, like, a lot of social yeah. issues that are, like, Black folks currently deal with. Um, and they're just perpetuating this. So I feel like that's, it, I, to me, that's so problematic. And, I another reason why I was just like I can't be a vegan like I can't like I can't really align with these kind of perspectives um I used to be a PETA fan I'm not anymore Hmm. yeah I think so I've never gone vegan which I don't think it would be very hard for me having a very Korean based diet yeah because a lot of our stock for soups Mm -hmm. it has anchovies um or like some or you know beef broth or like whatever it is and then um when we go out to eat meat is pretty central because you put it on the grill like korean barbecue you know everyone's eating that that being said a lot of our food is also vegetables like we have a ton of vegetables yeah um so i feel like i feel like plant-based is probably appropriate for how i eat right now because like diana i don't cook meat for myself or anything but I'm not opposed to eating meat. (laughs) Um, So I feel like, so I've never gone vegan, right? So I I just know that there there seems to be a lot of contention among different vegan communities, depending on what your views are on that. Um, But I did have a frustration with the whole Amazon fires going on because a lot of people had different things to say about what the solution to something like this would be. And one of those solutions was for people to go vegan. And that did not click right in my brain because I was like, I don't understand how, like, I understand how that 
maybe less meat consumption in general compounded with a lot of other things together Mm -hmm. can prevent something like this. But I don't know how going vegan alone can really be the solution to the world's environmental issues. Um, so I've done, I like, I feel like through grad school, I've also learned to do a lot of self self reflecting. Um, I used to also think like my one of my first part in college and paper um, papers in grad school was to how veganism can um, basically revert climate change. Mm. So I was in that stand, um, but. Um, after learning of the really like intricate things of what caused the, the the fires it's it really has to do um with so many other things it's like a huge topic yeah <laughs> so, very deep let's get into it <laughs> <laughs> so veganism yeah it could definitely so i think we should start with like what happened in the forest fires in the amazons in the amazon so the forest fires happened because a lot of bolsonaro which i don't know if you guys are familiar with he's a new president of brazil a right wing um fascist racist um anti-indigenous fantastic human yeah <laughs> you know the best of the best um yeah. <laughs> and he basically lifted a lot of restrictions for like pol- like policy restrictions on indigenous land for agribusinesses so because of these policies were lifted agri ranchers were able to just go into in- indigenous territories and start doing so the way that start deforesting to make space for cattle ranching so not just cattle ranching but also crop manufacturing so the way that a lot of ranchers clear land for deforesting for agriculture cultural purposes is that they set the forest on fire and like they control it and then they have like and then they basically burn the forest down and then like that's how they like, they clear the land to make space for animal animal agriculture so yes yeah. not eating animals would not eating meat will definitely reduce the chances of that happening but that's just looking at meat then we have to look into how um that these forests like the meat is not the only product being produced in these agricultural lands there's corn there's soy there is sugar um sugar and coffee sugar and coffee are the two main monocrop um monocrops produced in brazil so it's not even meat or pork um and it's also interesting because the soy and the uh and the other corn products they're not being produced to feed the people per se those are purposely produced to feed the cattle in the area so we that's why we produce enough food but most of it is not going to humans it's going to cattle yeah. um to make them you know grow, make them grow and like produce more but they're also being transported to the global north to um agricultural markets here in the states which um imports a lot of their seed and products and produce from brazil so then um that's looking at how cattle and and that happens but then you also have to think about who is consuming this meat that's being produced in brazil it's not mm. the people in the global south people because the food is not being like they're not even being allowed to touch it so when you tell someone that lowering their meat intake will reduce climate change you have to be specific as to who that is because per se if you tell me lowering my meat intake will lower climate change as someone that lives in the u.s and in the global north yes my personal reduction of meat intake will reduce meat production in um in the global south because you're being directly produced to me however when you look at 
the, the where most of this uh, meat is being consumed and you're looking at Europe and all these privileged people you know so it's like how like you need to all right let me just like try to get my thought process <laughs> so yeah so if you tell for example if like somebody in the global north in the global north if you if we reduce our meat intake dramatic drastically it would definitely like assist in like reducing um meat production but uh mm -hmm. the but that's not gonna reduce the production of soybeans that's not gonna reduce the production of coffee that's not gonna reduce the production of sugar which is mm -hmm. which are even which is a heavier industry in brazil as opposed to meat so meat could reduce like you stop eating like if we reduce our meat consumption yeah we could reduce a little bit of greenhouse gas emissions but it won't really solve the systemic issue of agribusinesses which is at the core of what is truly happening and the forest fires are not just happening in amazon they're happening currently in indonesia for palm because of palm oil production they're happening in yeah. australia for cattle production they're happening in um africa for forget what product or monocrop is mostly sourced from there but all of these fires are happening in the global south and in places where agribusinesses have really like monopolized on agriculture. However, and those agribusinesses are funneled, like they're funded by us because we are the ones that eat from it. Yeah. But again, we, I think like, uh, like and that's why I want to like start figuring out how to like create more of these um, localized food systems because that way we're no longer, like for example, here in the global north, if we were to have more local food systems, we will no longer depend on externalities from on external products from the global south and then that way we can also assist folks in the global south that are being um disenfranchised from farming to really have like some sort of power politically to say like hey like we're in the global north we're not supporting industrial agriculture anymore now we're supporting local farmers in the global south like how can we do that you know like it's yeah. like about building that type of solidarity between um um just different local communities and small communities across boundaries i i uh i'm trying to think of what else was related to the forest fires i mean it was a really dreadful experience i was crying like i will be honest i was crying i was in ecuador yeah. it was just it was not a good a good time um, given that like I've just I had just visited the Amazon so recently and I was just like why like this gem of an ecosystem and it's happening so I think like it the there's a lot of geopolitical factors that have to play in the role um, the IMF yeah. plays a big role in this the World Bank the World Trade Organization so when we're looking at like let's stop the forest fires let's look at those three you know it's not we can't blame it on people that all they all they have at, if like if you if you're low wealth and you only have access to eating meat that's all you're gonna eat like you yeah. like you can't just be like okay i'm not gonna eat meat anymore and like what can you eat there's nothing else you can eat because you don't have access yeah. to it so i think it's really important to look at the systemic issue not just like how each of us are like individually adding to it but like really pushing again for our elected officials to really hold these agribusiness accountable for what they're doing yeah it's heavy yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think uh, the glimmer of hope is that there's food sovereignty. <laughs> uh, food sovereignty. That there's indigenous peoples that are really like fighting to revitalize their ancestral knowledge mm -hmm. and like ancestral practices. And uh, somebody actually we talked about in my 
um, sustainable business model class last week on how my professor was kind of confused because she was like, I don't know, like they're telling like the solutions for climate change they're telling us that we have to go back to like living how we used to live before, which was sustainable before industrial agriculture. But like, how can we do that given the technology? And I like just asked, just like, it's not about really like, it's not about going back and living under a cave again, you know? It's not yeah. about like, like we've, I think, even there's nothing wrong with it. All like, if you want to go live in a cave, given a cave, live in a cave, go for it. <laughs> but um, I think it's not about really going back to that, but like revitalizing or reviving those practices that we used to have and like bring them yeah. back into what we are. And um, an indigenous, a youth and uh, a young indigenous person, I forgot her name. She was speaking at COP twenty five, in which she said that the the for the future, what it, what it needs is to have a combination of traditional knowledge and technology and how those two can be harnessed for the good of rather than for, you know, evil practices. And I thought that was really interesting to me because I've also been struggling with that. And like, how do we bring back these ancestral practices in our current, like mo modern society? And I think it's possible. It's just, um, it starts with bringing indigenous peoples into the table. Um, yeah. And even going, going even further than that, given indigenous people their land back and mm. having them work the land that they have known to work for for so long and us follow their leadership because I feel like for too long we've been like trying to like push for solutions that we think are the best ones and without really looking and especially especially to cl for climate change like the solutions already exist yeah. for to solve all the problems that we have in the world and that's the thing the most upsetting thing that I've had to like, uh, accept is that these solutions are already in place and it's because of the geopolitical aspects of how each of every um the geopolitical aspects in industrial food production and and any and the energy sector and the economy sector are just perpetrating this mm -hmm. told you it was deep <laughs> <laughs> it's always politics always comes it, back to politics yeah it, it always comes back to politics and it's power right? yeah but i think that that's where we have to come in and build that community power and like build that like localized energy to like really have like a foundation that could that can counter that because at the end of the day these powers these political decisions they're working because we're allowing it to first of all nobody's saying anything against yeah. it we're not protesting we're not doing anything and also because we don't like like if if they they keep receiving our money they keep receiving our consumption patterns so like we keep telling them continue continue it's okay it's okay so in a way us really like stopping like our consumption patterns could assist into like a reduction of like a more of awareness is like you know people are for example people are ha like there was an article that i read that people were having less children millennials for example us yeah. um <laughs> and uh, and it was due to like not being able to afford childcare, and I thought that was so crazy to me. It's just like, how is it that as like such a a thing as having a child is such a systemic issue, like it's become okay. such a a problem, and it has to do with health and it has to do with politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I guess um, <laughs> let's try and close off with some practical steps that people can take now that you know we've we've brought this um doom over people <laughs> um but just us as an individual right and mm -hmm. then this is with the caveat of knowing not everyone can do something 
you know, like we're limited with the capacities that we're given, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I don't have a lot of income to go and get sustainable food options or the transportation, whatever, like understanding that. Mm -hmm. But what are some good practical steps that people can take to impact that change and take on more sustainable choices and be more conscious of the system that we may be putting our dollars towards um, Mm. so that we can we can not contribute to this whole big hegemonic conglomerate of strong, powerful people <laughs> people's lives. Yeah. Um, so individually, um, for folks that can't, that don't have the economic access to sustainable food, I would say if you are of a background of, um, if your background is from somebody from the global south or like somebody like if your family comes from like a lineage of farmers so like they've some sort of agriculture in your fa- family which usually there is for like ppocs yeah try to like and get in touch back with that and like get in touch is just like how is it that my parents used to survive with their food when they were younger and like how can i do that now because i've also be doing that i learned that my parents were actually plant-based for most of their childhood um oh, yeah cool. and they grew up fine they had all these like protein but just from like local foods that they knew and so they've kept those traditions with them so like i've also like learned those traditions and i think um yeah like eat like eating organic is really important it's healthier for you but if you don't have the access to it i would say like try to like have like eat the foods that are less impactful like vegetables like even if you have to buy them in a supermarket they're still better than meat produced at the supermarket and even though supermarkets are really like they're not the perfect place to go get food there's if you don't have anywhere else to go i would still suggest to go for the vegetables if you have access to a farmer's market i would go to a farmer's market um there's a lot more popping up now and usually food is especially depends on what part of the country you are because if you're in the north um during the winter it's really hard to come across farmers markets but Mm, during the summer there there's a lot more options i would say look into how you can get access to that through the internet or through like a local food community also look Mm -hmm. into csa which is community supported agriculture they have a bunch of csa programs in new york city diana if you're interested Basically, um, community-supported agriculture, you have, it's a a cooperative model that you pay like a certain amount, um, I think it's per month, and you get food delivered, like healthy food delivered from farmers that are like rural or like rural farmers, and they get a good it gets brought into the city and then it gets just you get like a box of like healthy vegetables a week or like for the week like rations yeah and it's really like that's a really good way like a lot of my friends yeah a lot of my friends do that like they have like their food ration from like um csa's i think in in regards to access that would be like my suggestions just like do your research it's just it will be hard i would say especially for folks that don't have the ability the economic ability to get to that food but I yeah. wouldn't, I would say, like, not to be discouraged by that and try to still practice some sort of, um, like, healthier diet. Because it's not just healthier for the planet, it's really healthy for you. Like, meat-centric mm-hmm. diets are very, um, they're very unhealthy for people's, especially if you eat in the U.S. because if meat produced here is not well 
produce mm -hmm. like if you eat meat here and you compare it to eating meat in a different country it's totally different yeah and for and, and i think like the one thing that's really important is to uplift the voices of the movements that are really doing the work for this so even like for example here in the u.s um there is like this in upstate new york we have this farm called um soul fire farm it's a black and brown owned farm. They do agroecological practices. Agroecology is a part of food sovereignty. And their focus is into revitalizing the land with um, by focusing on black and brown folks. And mm. it's so, so cool. I went and volunteered for them <laughs> for one day. They have the Muslim, I had the Muslim amazing experience with them. And I recommend just supporting like, and like organizations like that movements like mm -hmm. that like even if it's just like a dollar a month or if you can like give like a shout out on the um on your stories or through an instagram post like sharing yeah. um, knowledge of these systems i think it will also increase like your accessibility to it mm -hmm. that's awesome that's really cool. yeah um and yeah just try try to like support each other build that community around food yeah yes <laughs> food is good i mean it's delicious too yeah mm -hmm. yeah and that's the episode thank you so much christian for talking with us as a reminder you can reach him at de la tierra soy d-e-l-a-t-i-e-r-r-a-s-o-y on instagram and we have the transcript and all the resources discussed in this episode up on the website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter at globalcaveat. And a big thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.